0: The French horn is a beautiful instrument in more ways than one. It's beautiful sounding, of course, but it's also beautiful looking. It's basically a carefully wound coil of metal that, if you unspool the whole thing, would be about 12 feet long, so it would look like a very lengthy bugle. So it may not seem impressive when you see someone playing a very high note on a French horn, but remember, they're putting that air a long distance. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. My name is Kirk Hamilton, and I'm so glad that you've joined me to talk about music with French horns and music with English horns and music with every other kind of horn. We're actually going to be talking about a song that features a French horn player this week, among many other cool instruments, and I am excited to get into it. So turn up the volume, find a comfortable place to sit and enjoy the show. The French horn does not get enough credit, in my opinion. It's one of the most important instruments in the modern orchestra, and it's one of the most important instruments in a film score. Anytime you have heard noble brass or a heroic theme, it is almost always played on a French horn. So many of those iconic John Williams themes from Star Wars and his other movies were played on a French horn. The French horn section, they're the ones who bring you home. They're the ones who summon the heroes to save the day. It is a beautiful instrument, and I wish more people gave it credit. It's just that it's not quite as dexterous as the trumpet. It's not as flashy and high as the trumpet. It doesn't have that cool trombone slide and it can't play those low, low tuba notes. And of course, it can't keep up with the woodwinds when it comes to speed. It is all about tone with the French horn. It is a noble and beautiful instrument. So to all the French horn players out there, I salute you. So, welcome to the show. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that you're listening to Strong Songs. I'm also really glad that people seem to really enjoy the last episode, the one about Nina Simone's Sinner Man. That was a really fun episode to make. I learned a lot while I was working on it. I learned a lot about her, and it was cool to hear that it resonated with so many people and led a lot of people to discover her music who maybe hadn't before. We've got a lot of new listeners, people who have just discovered the show, which is so exciting and very cool. Welcome to all of you. I hope you've been going back through the backlog and listening because I think all of these episodes hold up. I was actually listening back to the very first episode that I made about Toto's Africa. I hadn't listened to that in a while. It's kind of wild how far this show has come, how far I think I've come in the work that I do on it, even though listening back to that episode is still pretty fun. So if you're new to the show, welcome. I'm glad that you're here and I hope that you're enjoying going through old episodes and getting caught up. Thank you so much to everyone who's been spreading the word, who's been telling their friends or their family about this show or, you know, their podcast audiences. I hear from so many people who listen with their families. And as I always say, that makes me really happy just knowing that people are sitting around and listening uh, to music together and kind of analyzing it and sharing it in that way. It's something that I think we should all do more of just sit around and listen to music and really all listen together. And so just putting it on in the background while we do something else, it can actually be the center of the conversation. It can be the activity. If, say, you're currently cooped up in your house with your roommates or your family, you can sit around and listen to music together in addition to watching TV or reading books. And if it's just you, hey, listen to the music just on your own. Find the playlists that I've shared. I've put a bunch of playlists down in the show notes that you can listen to. And just put on some headphones and uh, and focus on the music for a little while. It's a wonderful distraction and a very nice thing to do. So it's very nice to hear that people are sharing the show in that way, that it's causing people to share music more, and also, of course, that they're spreading the word to their friends and telling them to check this show out, because people are checking it out. It's working, so thanks so much. Of course, Strong Songs is an entirely listener-supported show. Thanks also to all the new folks who have signed up on Patreon lately over the last month. We've definitely got some new people over there. Uh, That means a lot, because that is the only way that I make money off of this show. This is a one-man operation. I do this whole thing myself. It takes a lot of work, and I put a lot into it, and I'm able to do that more and more, because more and more people have pledged to support the show on Patreon. So, Oh, if you want to know more about how you can help me make this show head over to patreon.com slash strong songs and of course there's a link for that along with a lot of other stuff down in the show notes I am always taking new questions for Q&A episodes. I am going to be doing one of those in another couple episodes, I think. So if you have a question that you'd like to send in or just feedback, music recommendation, anything else, you can send it to strongsongspodcast at gmail.com. And of course you can find me on Twitter at Kirk K-I-R-K Hamilton and on Instagram at Kirk underscore Hamilton. Been having a lot of fun on Instagram, still posting teasers for episodes, various musical things. Instagram is kind of a a fun uh, social network. I like it over there. So if you want to find me on either of those places please do so all right let's get into this episode's song this is a strong one this is the closest thing to a perfect song that i have analyzed on this show it is also i believe the shortest song that i've analyzed on this show which just goes to show if you're going to polish something to this kind of a shine uh it doesn't really need to be that long to be great What song am I talking about? What is this song that I'm overhyping and getting everybody overly excited about? Well, it's one that you probably know, and it's another one of these songs that everyone has heard a million times, but maybe not sat down and truly appreciated, and that's what we're here to do on Strong Songs today. What song am I talking about? Well, there's only one way to find out.
1: I may not always love you, but long as there are
0: stars above you. That's right. As sure as there are stars above you, today we're going to be talking about a nearly perfect pop song and one of the greatest things ever recorded by the Beach Boys. God
1: only knows what I do.
0: I am very, very excited to talk about this song. More excited than I even realized that I would be. The song in question, of course, God Only Knows, written by Brian Wilson and Tony Asher, and recorded by the Beach Boys on their masterful 1966 album, Pet Sounds. Now, this song is one of those songs that everybody says is one of the greatest songs ever written. You'll see it on all of those top ten greatest songs ever written lists. It's frequently held up as the sort of er example of Brian Wilson's songwriting genius. A lot of songwriters will tell you that this Song is one of the greatest songs they've ever heard. And yet I gotta say that for a long time, it existed for me ambiently, like I was aware of God only knows. I knew it was a nice song with a nice melody, but I had never really done the work of taking it apart to figure out why people always spoke so glowingly of it. I actually always had a similar relationship with Pet Sounds, and I'm guessing that maybe some listeners can relate to this. I knew this album was great. I'd always seen it at the top of all the top 10 lists, and I'd listened to it, and the songs were cool. You know, Sloop John B., Wouldn't It Be Nice? I mean, these are classic songs that have turned up in a million movies and TV shows over the years. Anyone has heard them a ton of times. They're part of the fabric of American music. Now, I have done the close listening, I've sat at the piano, I've learned the song in preparation for making this episode, and let me tell you, this song is amazing. Pet Sounds is amazing. Brian Wilson is an incredible songwriter, and everyone was totally right. I guess that's not that much of a surprise. I mean, why would that many people be wrong about something? But man, it is worth the close listen, because holy cow, this is an amazing song. So I'm excited to get into it. There's a lot to talk about with this song, and it's all very densely packed. This song is, I believe, the shortest song that I've ever talked about on Strong Songs. It comes in at just under three minutes um, in the Pet Sounds original version. It fits a whole lot of stuff into that time, but we're going to be talking about the same, basically the same 12-bar phrase of music um, over and over again, just to get into the richness of it, because this is a very densely packed, very rich song, both harmonically in terms of the arrangement, the way that it's mixed, the way that it's performed. There's a lot going on in each second of those, you know, two minutes and 55 seconds of runtime. We're going to be talking some about the arrangement, about the different instruments and what they're all playing. That'll be really fun to kind of pick that apart. This is a beautifully arranged recording using a lot of musicians from the Wrecking Crew. That was the colloquial name for a group of studio musicians in LA in the 50s and 60s who actually played on a ton of hit records over the course of the decade and rarely got credited, including, as far as I can tell, on Pets. Sounds, I find no mention of them on the uh record jacket, but they've subsequently been credited with their contributions to the album, which are significant. I mean they were the band on the entirety of Pet Sounds, and they did an amazing job. Just to cite my sources, I am going to be going off of the Wikipedia entry for this song, which I know isn't always the most flawless source, but based on my understanding of the musicians in the wrecking crew and what I'm hearing on the album, most of the credits that I'm seeing seem correct, but there is of course a chance that I'm miscrediting someone or leaving someone off. That can happen. We are also going to be talking about harmony because this is a harmonically beautiful song, much more harmonically complex than most of the things that I've talked about on this show. And while I don't want to lose everybody talking about, you know, complex chord progressions and fourth inversions and stuff, um, I do want to talk a little bit about the harmony of the song. I'll be talking about a lot of the same concepts that I talked about in the Rhythm and Harmony bonus episode that I did just a little while back. Um, I will explain everything as I, you know, use it here. So you won't have to have listened to that episode to understand it, but kind of like with every episode of this show actually that episode is a nice just uh, a sort of booster of information about rhythm and harmony and in particular harmony here because this is a harmonically rich song it's doing some stuff um, that's really fun to talk about and get into and I want to do that without getting too technical so don't worry but I do want to talk about the harmony as well so let's get into it let's take apart this song that Paul McCartney himself once called the greatest song ever written I think we're up to the task of, uh, of figuring out what makes "God Galalina is so great, so let's do it. some vital stats up front God only knows like a lot of the Beach Boys most famous songs was written by Brian Wilson and Tony Asher Brian Wilson of course one of the founding lead members of the Beach Boys Tony Asher however is a lyricist a jingle writer someone who worked with Wilson on some of those big songs he has said that he mostly wrote lyrics and that was kind of his main input though he also had some musical ideas so it's safe to say that most of the songwriting the harmony and stuff that came from Brian Wilson though their collaboration was vital to the creation of this song and Asher's contribution should not be downplayed. Now, this was written by those two. The lead vocal is actually performed by Carl Wilson, Brian's brother, so he's performing the lead vocal. Brian Wilson sings backup vocals, and Bruce Johnson, another Beach Boy, sings backing vocals as well. That's actually fewer singers than your average Beach Boys song. The full band had more singers than that. A lot of their recordings have more people singing at the same time. There are a lot of iconic things about the Beach Boys sound, and one of them, though, is vocal harmony, and that, that group had a lot of singers, um, even when they would Change personnel. There would just be a lot of people singing at once, and Wilson's uh, vocal arrangements were just incredible and would bring out all these different sounds, you know, a little bit like a barbershop quartet, but sometimes even bigger than that, especially because he was so fond of multi tracking the recordings and having people record more than one part. As I mentioned, the instrumental backing tracks on this tune were played by members of The Wrecking Crew. There's a whole bunch of studio musicians in LA who would play on all kinds of records. There is actually a really, really cool documentary about The Wrecking Crew. I'm going to be talking about some of the individual musicians here. But if you want to know more about them, and I highly recommend it since they were kind of everywhere, I really recommend watching that documentary, which is just called The Wrecking Crew, and is usually available on some streaming service or other if you know where to look. So I'll be calling out some of those musicians by name as we get to their parts because I want to pick apart this arrangement because it's a wonderful arrangement with a whole bunch of unusual and beautiful instruments really well put together. A couple other little things to mention before we get into it. First of all, this album was actually released in mono and then later a stereo mix was released. I'm using the stereo mix because I think that makes it easier to hear individual parts. But the mono mix actually sounds really good so that is a fun way to listen to it. Just for reference, here's the first verse in mono.
1: If you should ever leave me, well, life would still go on, believe me.
0: And now here it is in stereo. If you should ever
1: leave me, well, life would still
0: go on, believe me. The other thing, on the 50th anniversary version of Pet Sounds, you can listen to instrumental Uh, versions of the of the tracks, so they've taken out the vocal parts and it's just the instrumental backing tracks and those are highly worth listening to they're really really cool they stand up on their own and it'll help you know it'll help you hear some of the harmonies some of those more intricate arrangements that can get lost behind the vocals which obviously are brought up to the top they were really helpful for me in figuring out all the music while I was making this and I'll be playing some clips from those as well as we get into the arrangement since it makes it easier to hear um, some of what's going on instrumentally. So let's get into it and let's start where else but at the very beginning with the intro to this song. It's a cool intro that already features some unusual instruments, so let's give it a listen. Here's the start of God Only Knows. Wow. So already there's a lot of unusual stuff going on, a lot of non-traditional instruments there. And something you may have noticed right off the bat is this track doesn't really adhere to the traditional rock instrumentation at all. I mean, those instruments are in there. There's a bass in there. There's a type of a guitar in there. There's a piano playing chords. But by and large, this is more like a chamber pop recording. And that's actually true of Pet Sounds in general. Pet Sounds very rarely adheres to the sort of traditional guitar, bass, drums, keyboards sound even though that was something the beach boys had you know behind them as a band in general this album moved really far away from that and by embracing you know the use of all these studio musicians people from the wrecking crew Brian Wilson really just went for this completely different sound to put this in a little bit of context this kind of is an example of a recording using the wall of sound technique even though it's not produced by Phil Spector and it wasn't recorded using that you know famous reverb room at Gold star studios Phil Spector legendary record producer kind of invented this sound called the Wall of Sound. It was used on a whole lot of popular records and actually a lot of records featuring musicians from the Wrecking Crew. And part of the sound was the you know the big reverb they put on everything but part of it was just doubling up instruments. A lot of the parts would just be played by one or two or even three people just to get a bigger thicker sound. And that is actually true on um, Pet Sounds as well. There are duplicate people on a lot of the parts in this arrangement which is fascinating and gives it a pretty distinct sound. Obviously, this whole record was produced by Brian Wilson, not Phil Spector, but he does seem to be trying to channel the same sound, that wall of sound. So that's something to be aware of off the bat. This is going to have a very different instrumentation than a lot of the stuff that we've talked about, and I want to kind of pick it apart because it's a super cool arrangement with an unusual mix of instruments that sound beautiful together, and I thought, thought it'd be fun if you could all kind of hear really what's going on. So listen to that intro again and really try to pick out which instruments you're hearing. Okay, so you're hearing some familiar sounds, some maybe less familiar sounds. Over on the right, you are probably hearing the piano play through the chords of this introduction. Now, this song is in A major, so it's in the key of A, and the first chord there is an A over C sharp, so it's like a first inversion um, A major chord, and it's going between A and E. So this intro is just kind of going between A and E, the one and the five, really kind of simple stuff, kind of a deceptively simple beginning, and the piano is just kind of going there playing those two chords. However, it's not just the piano. There's a second instrument playing those chords in the same rhythm, that kind of just like quarter note, bum, 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 rhythm, right there in the middle. And that is the harpsichord. There's also a harpsichord in. So when you put them together, it adds a very different texture. The harpsichord has that kind of taffy-ish sound to it, that, you know, broader, kind of more spangly sound that sticks together with the chords. And they sound pretty neat together. Now that's Don Randy on piano and Larry Nechtel on the harpsichord. They're joined by another chordal, instrument with actually two people playing this as well and that is the accordion there are two credited accordionists on this carl fortina and frank morocco both playing accordion i think mixed together to get this big thick accordion sound over in the left channel and instead of playing those short quarter notes bum 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 they're playing long whole notes and between the two of them they get this really thick kind of hurdy hurdy sound that's very cool i couldn't quite get it using the sampled accordion that i have but um we'll just have to make do Okay, so listen back to the original recording and pay attention for those instruments, see if you can hear them. So between the harpsichord and the accordion, they both kind of have that kind of that kind of brighter, buzzier sound that really sort of adds a shimmer to this that I really like. Then over on the left, you're hearing the melody. This is sort of a a melody, a melodic idea being played by what else but a French horn. That's Alan Robinson on the French horn. And this is such a beautiful instrument to begin uh, this song to use to play that that beginning line. I think it sounds really great. Um, I'm sort of uh, simulating it here, actually using an electronic wind instrument that I own. So I can make it sound kind of like a wind instrument, even though I certainly don't play French horn. It's a very difficult instrument. It's a little harder to hear this now, but over on the left, the strings are actually also in at this beginning. They become more prominent in the mix a little later in the arrangement. I think there's a whole string quartet playing here. I'm not totally positive what they're playing, but it's basically something kind of low, you know, like an E and an A over on the left. It creates a kind of thicker um, feeling along with that accordion over on the left. Okay, so those are the instruments that are basically playing at the beginning there. Then, halfway through the phrase, a few more instruments come in. Listen and see if you can pick out what they are. Now, I believe that's two basses playing. The credits say that Lyle Ritz was playing upright bass and Ray Pullman was playing electric bass, which tracks with what I'm hearing. I'm hearing a kind of uh, a more sort of subdued bass in the middle that I'm guessing is the upright acoustic bass. And then over on the right, a kind of picked electric bass. And, you know, I'm not going to play both of those here, but I'll, I'll sort of simulate it just by playing electric bass. And then there's also a kind of a nice shimmering sound in that is uh, the sleigh bells that come in over on the right, which is a really cool texture and, and goes through this entire song. There's not not really any traditional drum set on this song there's a little bit of kick drum under everything there's one point where a snare drum comes in but it's really just those sleigh bells kind of on quarter notes holding down the groove which is an interesting choice i think it's very evocative and beautiful and definitely distinct to this song the sleigh bells and the drum parts the the few drum parts that they are of course were all played by the great hal blaine drummer in the wrecking crew who played on a million hit records during this period of time I see that Carol Kay has a credit here on twelve string guitar. I don't think she's playing bass, even though she played bass with a bunch of Wrecking Crew stuff. She's a really cool lady. Um, she features prominently in that documentary. She was one of the, if not the only woman that to play with them. It was a lot of guys. She was kind of the exception that proved the rule, but she was really, really neat. And if you do manage to check out that Wrecking Crew documentary, which I recommend, um, she's just she's a real character. She seems like a really cool person. She also does play bass on a lot of the other tracks on Pet Sounds, and there are some very, very cool bass parts on this record. So, over on the left at the end of the phrase, you will hear two flutes. That is, I believe, Bill Green and Jim Horn playing flute. It's an alto flute and a regular flute in harmony. Uh, It's two different flute parts, and I'm kind of faking it because I don't have an alto flute. I wish I did. It's a beautiful instrument, but I don't have one, so I just recorded two flutes, kind of approximating the harmonies that are happening on the record. Okay, so I recreated this intro. This was just in the interest of sort of introducing a lot of the the sounds that are going to be on the rest of this track, and it was a fun little challenge. And so, you know, we have the piano happening over on the right. The piano is also joined by the harpsichord, also playing those chords. Over on the left, we've got the accordion. The accordion is playing the same chords along with everybody. The strings are in. The cello and the viola are playing simple pads. Um, And there is a French horn playing that little melody from the beginning. Then the bass comes in. There are actually two basses that come in along with the sleigh bells, which are ringing along with everybody. And at the end of the line, we hear that harmonized flute part, which sounds really nice. Let's listen to my recreation. So I feel like even just that, picking apart the arrangement and recreating it, is kind of a revelation to me anyways, or it was when I sat down to do this. The idea that that's the instrumentation of this introduction and of this song, there are some other instruments that come in too, but this song just never does a traditional groove, a traditional you know, beat or a traditional guitar part or anything. Um, it's just totally in this carefully arranged space that Brian Wilson created. And the whole album is that way. It's really incredible. I think it's easy to listen to these songs and just focus on the melody and kind of hear them go along and imagine them being played by a normal band. But that's just not what's happening. It's a, a huge group of studio musicians in a room playing these very specific particular parts that he laid out for them. And it's, it's magic. It makes such a beautiful sound. All right, so let's get into the first verse.
1: I may not always love you, but long as there are stars above you, you never need to doubt it. I'll make you so sure about it. God only knows what I'd be without you.
0: So I'm calling that the first verse, though this song also kind of doesn't totally follow the traditional song form. I mean, it has a bridge, it has an intro. I think of that as the verse, though it's kind of like those four bars at the very end where he says, God only knows what I'd be without you. That's the chorus, but it's just four bars. It's basically the end of the phrase. So it's kind of just this one big phrase that moves through this cycle of chords and then resolves on this idea. God only knows what I'd be without you. It's beautifully sculpted, and I'm going to call it a verse. But, uh, you know, you can call it whatever you want, I guess. The magic of this song is that chord progression and the way that the bass and the chords kind of intersect to create this framework that the melody then goes on top of to work with the bass to create these two uh, lines that kind of weave in and out of one another and create a trajectory for the song. Before we get into the harmony, one other thing I want to point out that's a new sound that's in that's so cool is over on the right, there is what I guess is credited to plastic orange juice cups um, that's what it says in Wikipedia anyways and it's kind of what it sounds like um, it sounds like somebody playing on plastic cups that's credited to percussionist Jim Gordon and it's uh it's this sound just like that's kind of happening over on the right I can't really simulate it because I don't have any plastic juice cups but um, just listen for it and try to hear it it's a really cool sound it runs throughout the song and it's actually to me at least one of the defining elements of the pulse of this recording. So you can hear it. It's, you know, kind of horse hoof style, uh, something like that. It gives it that kind of clippy-cloppy um, um, pulse. You can also hear that uh, that excerpt I just played is from the instrumental track with no vocals, and you can really clearly hear over on the left, the strings are in, you know, the full string section, and they're playing through the harmony, matching along with the piano. An interesting thing about this recording is, you know, in line with that wall of sound approach, a lot of times people were just straight up doubling their parts. The, the piano is playing something very, very similar to What the string quartet is playing. Um, It's just the strings are playing it, you know, one note a piece, and the piano is playing it all at the same time. So let's talk about this chord progression a little bit. What makes this chord progression work so well is the way that the bass notes intersect with the chords that are being played you know, by various different instruments, the piano, the accordion, the strings, and the way that the bass kind of changes the context for the chords. Now for starters, I'm not gonna go through every single chord in this song, partly because I transcribed this by ear. I'm pretty sure I know what all the chords are, but I'm not totally positive. I don't wanna like be providing an oral lead sheet for anybody. I've pretty much got it Worked out, But, you know, I might think of a chord one way and another person thinks of another way. You know, I think of it as a B-flat half-diminished and someone else thinks of it as a C-sharp minor over B-flat. Same difference, but it can just get confusing. But also, I don't want to do the thing where I just list a bunch of chord names because I know that probably just loses a lot of listeners. I'm not even sure what it accomplishes. So just let me say, the chords in the song are already unusual. There are half-diminished chords. There are diminished seventh chords. There are some really complicated inversions. The melody is using a lot of major sevenths, a lot of non it's using a lot of those kind of extended tones that get away from the really basic one, three, five, you know, uh, uh melody notes and the chords of one, four, five, you know, six minor that we hear so often in so many different songs. The key to all of this is the bass. It's nice because the bass is actually easy to listen for. It's just playing a simple single note. Um, the you know, the chordal instruments, the, the piano, they're playing chords. The chords are kind of harder to hear, but if you just listen for the bass, you can actually kind of unlock the magic of this song and that's what I want to train everyone to listen for. So let's go through this 12-bar segment of the song which is basically like an 8-bar verse and a 4-bar chorus. It's just that time through the melody starting with I may not always love you and ending with God only knows what I'd be without you and just track what the bass is doing and I want you to try to picture it as a line. I'm going to play along on piano so you can hear it a little bit better. Here we go. So just going off of the bass, it actually sounds like it's a really simple song. The bass only goes between a kind of a narrow section of the instrument. It just kind of starts on an A, goes to a B, goes down to an F sharp, and then it's just like A, B, C, B, B flat, and then it just walks down B flat, A, A flat, G flat, and then to E. And so it's this really kind of simple bass line that totally belies how complicated the chord progression that it's supporting is because the chords are being played in interesting inversions. Now, what is an inversion? An inversion is basically which order you stack the notes in a chord. So in a basic triad, you have a one, a three, and a five. That's called root position. First inversion would go three, then five, then one. You'd put the third on the bottom. Second inversion puts the fifth on the bottom. So you go five, then one, then three. You're basically taking the three notes and stacking them differently. So instead of going bun, burger, lettuce, suddenly you're going burger, lettuce, bun, and then you're going lettuce, bun, burger, which as everybody knows is the most rational and straightforward way to make a hamburger. So you can usually tell what inversion a chord is in by listening to what the bass is playing and that's why the bass line in God Only Knows is so interesting there's a version of God Only Knows that could have had, you know, a slightly more traditional chord progression, and it would have sounded a little bit more generic. It still would have been a nice melody. It still would have been a good song. It just would have sounded a little more like other songs. So to that end, let me show you what I'm talking about. I'm going to play a simplified chord progression that's really just like one, four, six. There's going to be a four minor chord. That'll be like the one colorful chord. And I'm going to play the same melody, but I'm going to play much simpler chords underneath it. Um, I'll just whistle the melody. You know, that sounds fine. If that had been the way they played the song, it would have still been a pretty cool song. You could hear that and think, oh, that sounds pretty good. But that chord progression that I'm playing underneath that is just much more standard. All of the chords are in root position instead of inverted, uh, where a lot of the chords in the actual recording are inverted. They'll have the fifth in the bottom or the third in the bottom. Or in some cases, the bass is playing the seventh, which is a fourth inversion chord. That's a pretty unusual chord. There's a B7 over A in this tune, or later, there's an E minor over D which is a pretty unusual inversion and creates a really cool sound. There's also a half diminished and a diminished chord, both in this section that I just played through normally, but in the version that I just played, the simplified version, I sort of simplified those chords. I took a B-flat half diminished chord, which sounds like this, and turned it into a C-sharp minor chord, which sounds like this. And I took a C fully diminished seventh chord, which sounds like this, and just played it as an A minor chord, which sounds like this. The melody still works over those simplified chords, it's just not quite as unusual and it it removes just a little bit of the color of the flavor of the song. So I'll do another whistled rendition of the song over the actual chord progression as I hear it, but first listen one more time to that simplified one. So now I'll do a version that's over the chords as I hear them, the actual chords of the song, really try to listen for the bass in particular, listen for where the bottom note is going, and just pay attention to just how much richer it sounds, not in a really obvious way, but in a subtle way. That's the kind of thing, you know, the difference between a B flat half diminished and a C sharp minor, just a slightly richer sound. That bass just causes the whole thing to kind of float along in this very delicate way that it wouldn't otherwise. And that kind of thing is just all over this song, and we can go all the way back to the very intro, when it's going between that A chord and that E chord. Those chords aren't in root position either, you're going between a first inversion A chord and a second inversion E chord. If they were in root position with an A and an E on the bottom, those two chords would sound like this. but instead there's a C sharp on the bottom for the A chord and a B on the bottom for the E chord, so it sounds like this. It's a slightly loftier sound. It kind of floats a little bit more, and a lot of the inversions in this song perform um, a similar function. So let's listen to those 12 bars again, and again, I'm gonna play along with the bass part on the piano so you can hear it, and just try to listen to that one more time, chart that bass line, follow how it just moves in these really close movements. It's just sort of walking up and then walking down while the harmony and the melody are actually moving all over the place.
1: But long as there are stars above you, you never need to doubt it. I'll make you so sure about it. God only knows what I need.
0: Okay, so we've talked a little bit about the harmony, but now I want to talk about the melody, about Carl Wilson's vocal performance, and just about how good that melody is. It's really incredible, and it works in particular uh, really well when placed against that bass line. Okay, so here's a way of thinking of musical instruments that, um, you know, it's not, this isn't a strict categorization, but it is something to think about. An instrument can be predominantly a melodic instrument, it can be predominantly a harmonic instrument, or it can be predominantly a rhythmic instrument. The general way that I think of it is a melodic instrument tends to be a single note instrument. It's an instrument that can mostly play one note at a time. A harmonic instrument can play multiple notes at once, which means most harmonic instruments can also be melodic instruments. When I'm talking about harmonic instruments, I'm talking about you know a keyboard, piano, um, a guitar, that kind of a thing, and as I'm sure you've noticed, the piano can totally play a melody, a guitar can totally play a melody. They just can also be a harmonic instrument where they're mostly playing chords because they are capable and kind of designed to play more than one note at a time. And of course, a rhythmic instrument doesn't really make tones or that's not its its main function. And so that's just like some kind of drum, some type of percussion instrument. That's kind of self-explanatory. Okay, so what does that have to do with God Only Knows? Well, The melody is, of course, sung here by Carl Wilson. The voice tends to be a melodic instrument. A choir can be harmonic, but a voice, unless you're doing some sort of throat singing or other multiphonic singing, you're probably not implying too much harmony. So the voice tends to be more of a melodic instrument. And in this case, of course, Carl Wilson is singing the melody by himself. He's doubling the track, so it's multi-tracked, but he is singing by himself. The bass is also a single-note instrument, and that means that it's helpful, actually, to think of the bass as a melodic instrument. It doesn't, like feel like the bass would play the melody because the bass usually sits at the bottom, it's playing a bass line, you know, it's not the primary melody, but every bass line is actually a melody. It's more of a melody than anything else. And a lot of the best players, you know, they come up with counter melodies that work really well in juxtaposition with the primary melody of the song. So with that in mind, I want to look at this melody and play through it just with the bass in the left hand of the piano and the melody in the right hand of the piano. You probably already have a pretty good sense of the contour of that bass line. So now Now just listen to the melody and pay attention to how it fits in with and mirrors and sometimes moves in opposition with that bass contour. So I talk a lot about contrary motion on this show, contrary motion being the idea of moving the bass line in one direction, the melody in another direction, or moving even just two harmonies in opposite directions to get a kind of richness and some, some a sense of motion, and you can kind of hear the contrast between the two parts. There is some contrary motion going on here, though in general, the bass and the melody are kind of two wavelengths, if you can picture two kind of wavelengths moving at slightly different frequencies, um, they, they kind of rise and fall together, just not exactly at the same time. I really like the structure on the second half of this. It goes from this E over B right here, and then it goes up a half step in the bass to a C diminished seventh. Then it goes back to the E over B, and then it actually goes higher in the melody and lower in the bass, the bass goes down to a B flat for that B flat half diminished, the melody goes up to an A flat, which is the dominant seventh on the uh, B flat minor seven flat five, that half diminished chord, and that is just an incredible little transition there. So we go from one chord to the next, then back down, and then we diverge. So I've been just marveling at this song since I started working on this episode. Um, I sent the lead sheet that I made to a friend of mine who plays piano, saying just basically, man, take a look at this. And he went through it, and his comment was, you know, basically, if you took the melody away and just sort of took away the instrumentation, this would look like a Bach cantata more than anything else. Which actually, he's not the first person to make that comparison. And this has that kind of voice leading, that kind of complexity to the way that the melody and the harmony interlock. They move so tightly and so closely. It just really isn't very much like most other songs in this genre at least and it really makes the song stand apart you can see this influence and hear the influence of this style of writing in so much modern music, actually in a lot of film scores I feel like I hear that some of these turnarounds in John Bryan's scores, for example, I really really like his music and I totally hear this stuff in in some of his work it's, it's a sound that you'll hear a lot now and this is kind of the originator. Now I know we spent a long time talking about what amounts of the first actual 12 bars of the song after the intro but it does kind of repeat itself a few times. This is a short song. It's very carefully polished, and they basically go through this 12-bar form twice. Then there's a bridge, and then they do it again, and then there's a round out. It's pretty simple. So in breaking down this, I'm kind of breaking down a lot of the, the stuff that you'll hear later in the song. Uh, let's keep going, though, and get on to the second verse, which does the same thing, 12 bars again, with slightly different instruments in
1: you should ever leave me. Well, to
0: So you can hear the strings are in over there on the left.
1: The could to so, what good would living do me? God only knows what I do.
0: And then they're already into the bridge. So there's not that much new going on that second time through. The strings are in over on the left, as I mentioned. They're just playing through the harmony. They're really kind of doubling what's already happening in the keyboards. So like I mentioned, a lot of these parts sort of double. And speaking of doubling, that is also true of Carl Wilson's vocal performance, which has been multi-track recorded. It's subtle, but you can hear that there's kind of just two of him, which, which gives this just, just kind of fatter sound.
1: So what good words. What good would living do me?
0: The key is you gotta just lower one of the double tracks significantly below the first one so it doesn't sound totally weird like, like there, there are two, two parallel, parallel voices, voices talking. talking. There's still a lead part, it's just the double part is a little bit underneath it that more adds to an effect. These days there are actually pedals and rack units, you know, there are effects that will just do this with a single vocal track. They'll sort of double it automatically and and just change it around a little bit to make it sound like two those are actually called doublers i don't use them i usually when i double vocals i just record the vocal take twice but some people get a lot of um cool sounds out of doublers which are just sort of designed to simulate what they're doing manually here in the studio by having carl wilson just record his vocal part twice Alright, so this bridge, let's get into it. This bridge and the subsequent turnaround out of the bridge are actually, kind of, in my opinion, the craziest two things in this song. And it's gonna be a real trick to kind of communicate why I think it's so incredible but it freaks me out how good this little this little instrumental bridge and then the section coming out of it and into that final verse is it's it's ridiculous so let's start at the beginning of the bridge there's really just two chords here they're kind of going between what sounds to me like a7 and g7 but it's mostly just figures there's kind of a bass figure and there's a descending figure in the keyboards and in the flutes that sort of run and counter to one another just for a couple of bars So you have the bass part, which sounds like this. And the higher part played on the flute and the keyboards, which sounds like this. When you combine them, they run in counter to one another and create a nice little tidy package that sounds like this. There's also that little snare roll in there, how Blaine finally gets to play a snare drum and uh, that just sort of establishes that this is a new section of the song it breaks up the groove a little bit and uh, yeah that's kind of what's going on here so listen one more time and try to hear those two lines in particular and how they're sort of moving in opposition to one another the bottom line is moving up while the top line is moving down let's keep going Okay, now we're in the thick of it. This section is incredible. What they're doing harmonically is incredible. What they're doing with the vocals is incredible. What they're setting up is actually even more incredible. My favorite part of this whole song hasn't even happened yet, but let's go through this part because it's really beautiful what's going on. Let's start with the harmony. The first chord here is even a cool one. It's an E minor over D. So that's another one of those fourth inversion chords. And the chords in general here are just really neat. There's another nice half diminished chord. And the whole thing moves in this kind of upward direction that makes you feel like you're just developing and building as they're layering on new vocal parts. I want to talk about those vocal parts more than I want to talk about the harmony here even though the harmony, it's just more of the same. It's more of this really perfectly constructed um, harmonic progressions that actually take some of the ideas that were introduced in that verse and um, turn them on their head or do something slightly different with them to just tease your ear and go in a different direction. Now Brian Wilson and Bruce Johnson are both in on backup vocals here in addition to Carl Wilson and they're arranging their parts in a pretty cool way. It's kind of three different parts and I want to try to see if I can help you hear each of those three parts. Now the first part is the top part that starts things out. It's a a doubled part but it's just one person singing up high. So some nice high notes that are kind of side out and then the middle voice comes in and is a lot busier. Really shortly after that the third voice comes in and that's the it's a much more nasal and full voiced sound so that sticks out as well Really quickly, those three lines start to sound kind of indistinguishable from one another because it's so well arranged and because the voices are blending so well. So I decided I would try something a little bit different to help you hear each part. So we're going to make the flutes that top part. The flutes are going to be playing the top notes. The second voice is going to be played by a clarinet. And the third voice, that kind of brassier sound, bah bah bah, that's going to be played by an alto sax. So let's hear that same part, that vocal arrangement, played by flute, clarinet, and alto sax. Not bad! Let's hear how it sounds if I play piano along with that, so you can hear the chords as they go by, and pay attention to how all those voices mix in with the harmony that's passing. When I hear it played on instruments like that, it really gives me a sense of where that term chamber pop comes from. This sounds like a chamber ensemble, it's just that in this case, the voices are human voices singing sort of vocalized sounds instead of wind instruments. But musically, I mean, it's really the same difference. So listen back to that section in the recording and just pay attention for all of that. Listen for where the bass is moving, listen for where the harmony is moving, and in particular, try to listen to each of those three voices and how they sort of come apart and then come together and then really beautifully mix on that final little crescendo as they move as one through that final harmony. So right here is actually my favorite thing in the entire song. It's three measures long. It is incredible. It's the thing that totally freaked me out the first time that I was transcribing this song, that it works as perfectly as it does. And it may not sound that weird to you if I just play it out of context. It's these three measures. doesn't exactly jump out at you if you're just listening to the song, but when I was sitting there at the piano figuring it out, it totally blew my mind because of what's going on here. This entire instrumental section, this whole bridge, has basically built up to this moment. It's been building up to this reprise of the melody, God Only Knows What I'd Do Without You. The thing is, in the process of the bridge, they've totally changed the key, and this time that Carl Wilson sings God Only Knows What I'd Be Without You, they're actually up a fourth, which not only sounds cool on its own, but causes this phrase to feed perfectly back into the verse so they can start over in the same key they were already in. Now I'm gonna briefly show you just technically what I'm talking about there, but it's sort of hard to demonstrate just how amazing I think this is. It's kind of like a twist ending at the end of a movie or a book. When a really good twist has been set up well, you don't exactly see it coming, but when it happens, everything slots into place. And you have this feeling of looking back at the story you were just told with a whole new perspective and you think, Oh, we were going here this whole time. Oh my God, it all works perfectly. So this whole bridge has been this elaborate developing chord progression that's moving toward a D chord. And when they finally land on the D chord, what do they do? But they sing, God only knows what I'd be without you. And as they do that, the bass walks down and then it ends on the A, which sets up that D over A, which is the very first chord of the next verse. It's an incredible ending that's just so tidy and so perfectly polished.
1: God only knows what I'd be without you If you should ever leave me The life would still go
0: it's a perfect example of the kind of brilliance that's as brilliant as it is because it doesn't draw attention to itself. It's so elegant that you might not even notice that it's happening. Like you might not even notice here that he's singing God Only Knows What I'd Be Without You up a fourth in a different key unless you would, you know, really sat down at the piano or maybe you had perfect pitch. But this is what it sounds like normally when he sings it starting on an A chord. God only knows
1: what I'd be without you
0: And this is what it sounds like this time when he sings it on the D chord. And the reason that a listener might not even notice that the key has changed just for that statement of the phrase is that the entire bridge has functioned as a huge, long turnaround, a big setup aiming toward that D chord to allow that restatement of the melody up a fourth that then will resolve perfectly to the beginning chord of the verse to get us right back where we started. It's bonkers. This is the kind of thing that leads me to describe this song as being perfect because it fits together with a kind of immaculateness that I very rarely find in music. And it's as beautiful as it is in part because it's not showy about it. It's so organic that you almost wouldn't even notice it's happening. It doesn't feel like someone wrote it to be that way. It just feels like it is that way. And that's how the song always was. Man, and then we're just in the final verse, like it was nothing. Like that bridge was just a little journey we went on, that of course wound up right back at our front door to do one more time through the verse. I love this woodwind line here. And then it's time to go into the final section of the song, when the three singers begin to sing in the round. The instruments begin to gradually layer in the strings, and then eventually the French horn. And then they just kind of fade out in this dreamlike way, each instrument playing variations of the same melody, bouncing off of one another as they gradually grow quieter. I've really become taken with this idea of a fade-out in the studio, not meaning that someone sitting at the board just slowly lowered the fader, and more that the band just maybe kept playing forever, especially with a song that exists in a dream-like, melancholy space, the way that this song does. You know, the question that this song is asking, God only knows what I'd be without you, it's a question about a possible future. It's someone just sort of dreaming of a future that may or may not come to pass. And I think that the way that this song just begins to reverse bigger and bigger and stretch and pull apart, it perfectly matches that energy. God Only Knows is as close to perfect as any song I can think of, not just as a generalized example of what can be accomplished when the right composer works with the right musicians at the right moment, but more specifically as a faultless example of Brian Wilson's genius. There has only ever been one person who wrote songs like this. And that'll do it for my analysis of God Only Knows, written by Brian Wilson and Tony Asher and performed by the Beach Boys along with many members of the Wrecking Crew Studio Collective. I really recommend watching that Wrecking Crew documentary and also listening to all of Pet Sounds. Pay attention for what's happening under the vocals. If you like this episode, I hope you'll consider backing me on Patreon. That's what makes it possible for me to keep making this show. Find out more about how to do that at patreon.com slash strongsongs. As always, you can send me questions, feedback, suggestions to strongsongspodcast at gmail.com, and you can find my social media links in the description. The outro soloist for this episode is Mr. Luke Price, a fantastic fiddle player who also has a really cool singer songwriter duo with his wife rachel called dean that you should totally check out so stick around for luke's solo and i'll be back in two weeks with yet another strong song